The scripture today is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeliness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give to you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts in the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had what all that he had made and that it was very good. And it, there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the God. So today is the start of a brand new sermon series that was going to start last week. Uh, And if you were here, you would know that I was not here. (laughs) We had a little bit of a stomach issue at our house. I'll spare the details. Uh, But needless to say, I'm feeling better. So thank you. I I know that many of you are praying people, and I'm sure many of you prayed for our family. So thank you. Uh, We're feeling... Well, we actually were, were feeling pretty good even by Monday, but Saturday was the worst, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, but we're starting in this new sermon series, uh, and it's about the role of priests uh, in the Bible. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. It's actually one of these topics that, that requires us to kind of dive deeper into Scripture. It, it requires us to trace a theme uh, kind of all the way through the Bible, and this theme of priests or priesthood Uh, is something that's very prevalent through the Bible. It starts right at the beginning, uh, goes all the way through. We see a lot of it, uh, of course, in the life of Jesus, and then it goes all the way into the book of Revelation. So it's a perfect uh, topic to kind of dive into. Uh, And if I were to just ask you about priests in the Bible, I would imagine maybe a few people, a few ideas might come to mind. Uh, One is uh, Aaron, the first high priest Uh, the brother of Moses, again, the very first high priest of Israel. Um, You might think of other priests that come up. There's this whole uh, group of priests, and there are people that work, and they serve inside the the tabernacle and inside the temple, and they do all of these uh, kind of special religious roles uh, in God's people. Or if I asked you about priests in the Bible, you may not know at all what to think, uh, and that is also fine. (laughs) but it is, I think, important that, uh, that as we start to explore this, that, that we can realize, and we'll get to it more in the sermon today, that the very first priests, I believe, in the Bible are actually far before the word priest is even used. So the word priest is first used in Genesis 14. But it's used in this way that, that it's like we already assume what it is. There's no explanation of what a priest is in Genesis 14. We're just introduced to a character and we're told that he's a priest. 
And, and as we read in the book of Genesis, we actually see very early on this outline of what a priest does, what their roles are. So uh, we're going to explore today how the very first priests in the Bible are none other than Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden. But this actually requires uh, a decent amount from each of us as we kind of look at this text. And and I have three things that I wrote down that I think are kind of important that we need to have our minds set to as we start to look at this text. So the first one is this. We need to be able to put aside all of our modern questions that we so frequently come to the Bible with. So If you don't get what I'm saying, a lot of us, we kind of come to the Bible uh, and, and we have a set of questions. They're questions from our own culture or questions from our own time. And, and there's a tendency to look at the Bible and try to use it as some kind of resource manual, some kind of quick lookup, quick fix kind of situation. So we come to things like Genesis 1, and we're asking questions that, that the original audience in the ancient Near East may, may not have even been asking. So instead, in this series, we're going to need to practice this, this muscle inside of us that we're going to come to this text, we're going to look at what it says, and we're going to try to understand what the questions were that the people were asking that this was originally written to. Does that make sense? So it's a little different. So again, our tendency is to come there and to say, these are all my list of questions. How was the world created? You know, when, when light comes, does that mean that that's when photons start? You know, we have these, these questions that I guarantee you no ancient Near Eastern person was asking. They didn't know the word photon. And that's okay. But, so we're going to look at it, we're going to read it for itself, and we're going to try to see what questions are being answered, what's being addressed here. So that's the first one. It's a little bit like if I were to go into someone's house, and you know when you enter someone's house, you've never been there, you're kind of picking up on these like social cues, uh, and you kind of look by the front door, and if there's a big you know, pile of, of shoes, you probably know that these people don't wear their shoes in the house. And if there's no shoes by the door, then you kind of look at their feet, Real quick, to decide, do I take my shoes off? Do I not take my shoes off? Right, we all do this. This is just, it's being a good, I was going to say being a good host. That's not right. It's being a good guest uh, in someone's house. And we're doing the same thing in the Bible here. We're going to go into the Bible. We're going to look. We're going to look for the clues. We're going to look for what's going on. And we're going to try to decide uh, what, what is kind of the cultural expectation. What, what is this space that we've entered into? The second one that I know uh, so many of us, myself included, that, that we have this tendency that when we look at the Bible and how it's laid out, that we immediately want to rush to self-application in our own lives. That we read a really small thing, it's kind of the verse of the day kind of mentality. We read a tiny little verse, and then we say, how does that apply to me right now? What does that mean for me at, at my job? What does it mean for me at home, in my relationships with other people? And I think that's a valid way to look at Scripture. But for this series, we're going to take one step back from that, and we're going to realize that we're going to get there, but it's going to be a little slower. Because this is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. So if you draw huge conclusions on your own life based on uh, the first half of today's sermon, you might start living kind of an odd life. Sacrificing animals, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Right? So we're going to be slow to this idea of, of self-application. And we will get there, but it, it might be a little slower than we're accustomed to. 
And the third one is this, is that a lot of what we look at here, uh, it may just be kind of new. You may be newer uh, in your walk with God, or you may have been walking with God and reading the Bible for many, many years. Uh, but, but there's a lot in the Bible. It goes really deep. You, you can read it, you can feel like you understand it, and then you read it again and you understand something completely new. And sometimes it's because you change. Sometimes it's because your own context changed, something going on in your own life. But other times, I, I fully believe that it's just how the Bible's meant to be read. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's actually this, this genre that, that many scholars put the Bible in that, that means that the Bible is supposed to be studied hundreds and hundreds of times and that you finally start to get more and more. It's like peeling the onion away, and, and actually it's designed in a way that we can never get there in one lifetime. So we stand on the shoulders of other Christians, other believers that have been studying these scriptures, and, and we can read what they say, and we can see what they say, because no one can get there in even one lifetime. This is not Dr. Seuss here. I read my kids' Dr. Seuss books, and I read it once, and I feel like I understand it. I feel like I understood the book. I read it three times. I feel like I really understand. I'm like actually making connections that aren't there. I'm like, oh, it's kind of like, you know, this in my life. And I'm like drawing all these conclusions that are me like making it more complicated than it is to entertain my, I don't know, adult mind. This Bible is not like Dr. Seuss books. And it's intentionally so. It's so much deeper, so much richer. We can read through these texts and we can, we can understand them. And then we can read them again and understand them in a different way. And then understand in a different way. And it's kind of over and over again. So we're getting, this sermon series is a little deeper on that scale than, than a lot of the sermon series that I have been doing at this church in the last two plus years. And, and that's intentionally so. I think Lent's a good time for this. But we're going we're gonna to dive deep into Scripture into this, in this service. And we're going to look at, uh, again, what does it mean? Uh, what are these priests? What's going on? And how does that tie into our own lives? So we're going to put aside our modern questions and actually kind of look for the questions that the authors of the Bible were trying to address. Uh, number two is that we're going to be okay that it's going to be a little bit slow. And number three is that we're going to look at the Bible in this term that historians use. It's called that the Bible is ancient Hebrew meditation literature. Oh, you got to write that one down. So good. Ancient Hebrew meditation literature. And you all kind of know this if you're Bible reading people. Again, this is this idea that you continue to read the Bible and you continue to see more and more and it gets more and more uh, in depth and, and it's just written that way. It's not just that that, that happens. Like This is part of how this is structured. So let's get started here. Again, we're going to look at, in today's sermon, how the priests in the Bible, the very first ones that we see are none other than Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, in a modern world, in our world, the word priest can mean many different things to many different people. And a lot of that has to do with our own context, has to do with how we grew up. If you grew up uh, in the Catholic Church, priest might mean a certain thing to you. Maybe you grew up in a church that, that was not Catholic, but, but you knew of many Catholic people, and you knew of priests in that setting. Or certain groups of the Anglican Church use the word priest to talk about their clergy. Uh, again, we're going to kind of shift here. This is going to be our shift to our, our good ancient Near Eastern hat. 
uh, if you will, put it on. We're going to study it. Um, so if you went to the ancient world, just if you can imagine, if you went to the ancient world, you would see temples. You would see these buildings. They're often grand. They're often uh, large and impressive. And, and in a very real way, these buildings are a place where the realm of the God that you're worshiping and the realm of humanity start to overlap a little bit. So in these overlapping spaces, in these overlapping special places, people build these temples to the gods. So there's a very real sense in their worldview, in their mind, that, that there's this temple, and, and God, their God kind of lives there. Their God is present in, in a real way in that space. It's not, it's not that in their worldview, it's not that you come forward and you kind of make an offering and then you're like, well, that kind of is like that goes to that God. No, this is, this is fully what they believe. This is fully going to that God. And we go to this special place, this special location, and in this special place, the realm of, of your God in the realm of humanity is overlapping a little bit. And in that overlapping space, again, there are temples. And in these ancient temples, you will certainly find priests. And the role of a priest in these ancient temples is to take care of the temple. That's one of their main roles. They, they nurture it. They, they take care of it. They keep it clean. They do all the ritual practices. They burn fragrance inside the temple. And the priests would receive sacrifices from the people. People would come and they would bring uh, animals or they'd bring grain and they'd give it to the priests and the priests would then take it into the temple and they would turn around and they would offer it to God or their God or whatever God uh, is being worshipped in this ancient temple. And, and they would mediate, these priests, their main role is that they would mediate between God and people. So there were specific people that stood in that gap there was this idea that, that God was, the gods were so far removed and, and humans were so low that someone needed to stand in the gap, and that was the role of the priest. And they did it in a certain place, in a certain time, in certain ways that were special and they were, they were considered sacred. Also in ancient temples, you would always find what we call icons. Now, icons isn't a word we use a whole lot. We often would use maybe the word idol, but it's these, these giant statues. And they'd be in the center of the temple, not the temple in Jerusalem, but these other pagan temples, right in the middle of the temple, would be a giant statue, and it would be, it'd be made beautiful. It would be grand, maybe made of uh, precious metal and intricately carved and impressively made, and, and it would represent the rule and the authority of the god. So maybe if your god was represented by some kind of animal, it might, it might be that animal, a giant statue right in the middle. In all of these temples, almost every single time would be buildings. Sounds funny to say, but it is fair. <laughs> They're buildings. They're structures that humans made, and they have this significant value, but they're buildings nonetheless. But at the very beginning of the Bible, and I'll go through it later, we see as clear as day that God is doing something different than this. That there's this temple, and it's not a building at all. It's actually a garden. 
And we get there in Genesis chapter 2, we find ourselves in the Garden of Eden. It just simply means garden of pleasure or garden of delight. And in this temple, the role of the priest and the role of the icon, the role of this statue, are actually merged into one. They're merged into one, and it's not the trees that you hear about. They're merged into one, and it's, and it's humanity. It's Adam and Eve. It's people. And we're told that they're made in the image of God. And, and as, again, we're diving deep here, and we can see it clearly. Uh, if you know your Hebrew, how many of you know your Hebrew? No. <laughs> if you knew your Hebrew, yeah, I mean, some, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, if you knew your Hebrew, this would stand out. This, uh, this image of God language would stand out clear as day because this word image is the exact same word always used when the Bible talks about those pagan temples for that statue in the middle of the temple, that icon. It's an image of the God. You shall make no other you know, gods before me. There should be no other images of other gods. This is language we know from the Ten Commandments. So this word image is the exact same word. It's not saying that, that it's bad. It's saying the Hebrew text is pointing us that something's happening here. This Garden of Eden, there's, there's something more than it's a garden in the east. This is actually a temple that is built here. And the carved statue is not some pagan statue of, of a bull or so, some other animal. It's humanity. And they're placed there, and they're told, uh, in terms we'll get to later, basically to be priests of this space, but that they themselves are also the image of God. That as they go around the world, that they represent God in themselves. That's why they're not supposed to make other gods. You're also not supposed to worship them. That's important. But, but why are you taking creation some kind of animal, and you're lifting it above humanity when humanity is the image of God in the world. You are a representative of what God is doing. We're told that humanity is placed there and that they're supposed to steward all of creation. All that God has made, that, that, that they are the ones that essentially stand in this gap. Remember this idea in the ancient world, there's God, and, the, and there's everything else, and someone needs to stand in the gap. And how the creation story unfolds is that the one who is standing in the gap is humanity as a whole. There's God, there's all of creation, and the one in the middle is all of those who are in the image of God. It's all of humanity that is there when they're living up to their potential. When they're not living up to the potential, they fall short over and over and over again. So again, really important here that in the Bible, the word priest is the standard word for a person that stands at this intersection of heaven and earth and somehow mediates between the two. There's something going on that, that they're mediating between the two. They're kind of this gateway person that, that everything kind of goes through the priest to God and, and back through the priest, down to the people, over and over again. So you have, uh, in the Old Testament, you have God, you have the people, and then you have the priest that's in the middle. 
And, and the people want to be right with God, so they bring their offerings, they bring their sacrifices to the priest. And then the priest offers it to God, and, then, and the priest might receive a word from God or God's blessing, and they turn around and give that to the people. So it goes both directions, but it always is going through this role of the priest. And what I find so fascinating, and, and not to make it even more confusing, but I will, <laughs> is there's actually three roles in the Bible that do this. There's, there's three kinds of people that stand at this intersection of heaven and earth. The first one is priests. We've already talked about that. That seems a little obvious, right? The second one is actually kings in their mind. Kings and queens, those who rule over, especially those who rule over God's people because they rule in God's authority. We'll get to it in, in the Genesis account, but the people are told to rule over creation. So when there's certain people that, that rule and they're doing it well, they're also in this idea of, of this space in between. And the third one is the prophet. It's these major three roles. And this makes sense, because as we read through the Old Testament, there's major three roles that almost everyone falls into. You have the priest, you have the king, and you have the prophet. And the prophet actually enters uh, normally into kind of a dream state, uh, as we read in the Bible. They're dreaming, and they see a vision of something above. They see a vision of God and, and something in God's realm. And then they take that, and they turn around, and they bring that to the people. So they're not so much doing it with offering, uh, but they're doing it with a word from God. Or they take uh, the actions of the people, and they turn around, and they bring that back to God. And we see this over and over again uh, in the Bible. Now, now, the key part here is that this all works out without sin. Without the fall, this all seems to be a pretty good system. Humans are able to stand in this gap. Uh, there's no problems. But as soon as we get to Genesis chapter 3, which we won't get to today, but we won't get that far. But as soon as we get to Genesis chapter 3, the fall enters into the world, and sin is here, and, and humanity, this, this idea of them even living into this image of God uh, kind of idea, all falls short, and it starts to break down, and no one's able to live into these different roles. And, and we never see someone until we get to the New Testament that lives out this perfect role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus. So that's where this is going, all right? So we're heading to Jesus, but we're taking the long road, and we're going to look here uh, at this role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. You see, prophets, they, they kind of point people towards, towards God. They, they listen to God, except for when they don't. And, and they kind of see these visions of, of what God is doing and they relay it down to the people that they're sent to, except for when they don't. And then they, they mediate kind of between God and, or between humans and God, except for when they fail to do so. And the kings are the same. They have this idea of rule, and this, even this idea of ruling and God's authority sounds so awkward to us, right? If that sounds like, ooh, I don't know about that part. We live in a democracy. Uh, but it works until it doesn't. It works until they're corrupt. 
It works in, in the Bible, it works until they start having hundreds of wives. It works until they start, uh, you know, murdering their own generals. It, it works until they are just as corrupt as the other nations around them and their own power and their own authority. Uh, they use that to build themselves up. And possibly the worst, the priests, you know, this whole idea, it works, that, that they're kind of mediating between the two, they're receiving these offerings and they're giving them to God until they start building idols, until they start leading God's people to worship false gods, until they start uh, just, just not only going along with the people's desires to, to seek after these these earthly figures, but they start actually leading it. They start being in charge of it. They start running it. So as we read through the Bible, we get to this point where by the time you're done with the Old Testament, I don't know, you're kind of ready to be done with the Old Testament. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, I get it. This is, this is like, this was supposed to be good. Everything, you know, got messed up with, with sin. And then we just see the consequences of sin in every area of humanity, in every area of life. And, and we kind of go and we, we read through it and we say, well, yeah, but what about these certain people? Now, there, isn't there certain people that are supposed to stand in the gap, certain people that are supposed to mediate? And then those people fail over and over and over again. And it leaves this longing inside of us where we go, isn't there anyone who can do this well? Isn't there anyone that can live into these roles? Isn't there anyone? And then we get to Moses, and we're like, oh, this one's good. If you read it, you're like, oh, Moses, he's got a few things going on. He's, he's got this prophet stuff going on. He's not much of a king, but he's got the priest thing too, a little bit. And, and Moses, it looks like he's close, and then he fails. And then we get to David, and he gets as close as anyone ever gets. We have, we have the king, He's also kind of a prophet because he's writing all these psalms and he's connecting with God in this way. He's hearing God's word. Um, is he a priest? Well, there is a story where he puts on the, the clothes of the high priest as the temple or as the tabernacle is being brought in and God delights in it. You or I put on those clothes, I don't think God would delight. So there's something special going on here, but then he fails brutally over and over again also. And it leaves us with this hunger, with this longing inside. And again, Jesus is coming. So there's good news in that. But this is set, it's setting us up for this. But I don't think we get there quite as well if we don't dive into this deeper. So let's go right into Genesis uh, 1 and 2 here. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27. God is towards the end of creation here, and it says, And then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So we're towards the end of creation here, and God makes his crowning achievement, humanity. 
and he places them there, and he says that they will be the image of God, and here he gives them kind of his role. And, and I really like it. If you actually just dive into it here, why does he make them? Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Why? So that they may rule. So that they may rule over everything. Why? Because that's God, it's God's authority. God created it all. God is, is to rule over all of creation, but God is a relational God. So he makes mankind. He makes humans. And he says, I'm, I'm going to let you rule alongside me. There's going to be this divine human partnership. God and humanity working together in creation to bring order out of chaos. God doesn't need them, but he wants them. He wants to do it with them. There's this desire for partnership, this desire for relationship, and that brings us to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So again, not only does he create them to rule, now, now he creates them to rule, and then he also points them uh, to what they should rule. Be responsible for creation. Care for it. Look after it. It doesn't just stop here. Let's jump ahead here to Genesis 2, 15. Now we're in the Garden of Eden. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Two commands, to work it and care for it. This is actually really brilliant in the Bible. I didn't realize it until like two weeks ago. <laughs> but there's something really cool here. So these words, to work it and care for it, are always the words that are given to the priests of what they're supposed to do to the temple. They're supposed to work and they're supposed to care for the temple, for the sacred space, for this, this temple of God's people. Over and over and over again. <laughs> in the Bible. Again, you don't get it reading number one. You don't get it reading number two or three or four. It takes like three lifetimes later, <laughs> and you read, and you read, and you listen to these other uh, biblical scholars, and they point it out, and you're like, oh, there's other priestly language going on here. Let's look at some evidence here. So my, my claim is that the Garden of Eden is a temple, and that might sound kind of new to some of you. Uh, it's not new in the idea of, like, Christian theology. Just so you know, I didn't come up with this. This is not me being a, a weirdo. Uh, but let's, I'm just going to go through a list here. This is uh, six different things that kind of point to that. Uh, and there's Scripture connected. I'll, I'll read you the Scripture uh, verse, but, but I don't want to go through and read each one. So if, if you want this list, I can certainly send it out to you. But uh, it is interesting. So evidence number one to the Garden of Eden being the first temple. Later in the biblical story, the temple 
was a place where God's unique presence was experienced by priests. And in the garden, it's the place where God walks with Adam and Eve. And this is really spelt out clearly in 2 Samuel 7, verses 6 through 7. It's just clear as day connecting right there. Number two, these words, like I just said, to work and to keep in the garden is the exact same task that priests were given to do in the temple. And this list could go on and on, but if you look up Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, uh, it's right there. If you continue on into Numbers 18, 5 through 6, uh, it's right there and it just continues on through, through many, many books of the Bible to work and to keep. The tree of life from Genesis 2, 9. Uh, the tree of life is, is in the garden and it's probably the model for the lampstand that's in the tabernacle. So if you don't know what words I just said, that's fine. Uh, but if you do know what I'm talking about, in the tabernacle, there's this lampstand, and they're told to design it a certain way. And in Exodus 25, verse 31, we hear the description, and it's all garden-themed. Every part of it. There's buds on there. There's, there's vines. Uh, it's supposed to look a certain way. Everything in the temple is supposed to look like a garden. The pillars are carved in a certain way. There's a certain design going on. I'll just read you that one. It's interesting. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Again, this is Exodus 25, 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammered out uh, its base and shaft, and make flower-like cups and buds and blossoms of one piece with them. You kind of get that? So they're making this lampstand. They're going to put the lamp on it. It's going to going to shine light, and it's made to be flower-like. It's made to be garden-like. Number four, I already said, the whole temple, there's wood carvings everywhere, and they're all this garden-like motif going on. And it's not like, oh, you decorate your bathroom with seashells, and, and, and you decorate your kitchen with, I don't know, barn doors or something. Cows. Cows and seashells kind of design thing. There's a whole lot more going on here. It's very deep. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> that light blue. Everyone's got a Cape Cod bathroom. Number five, um, this is in Ezekiel. If you want to see a lot of this, read the prophet Ezekiel. There's so much going on. But in Ezekiel 28, 14, 14 through 16, we read that the entrance of the temple faced east, and it was on a mountain. And then we read a vision of the end times and that there'll be a temple in the end times and that it will face east and it will be on a mountain. And then when we read in the Garden of Eden, it faced east and it's on a mountain. And there's rivers flowing down from it. Again, it's clear as day if you're just looking through the Bible for these things. And number six is right in there. A river flows out of the garden, and it blesses all of the land around it. This is in Genesis 2, verse 10. And so, in the book of Revelation, there's a river that flows out of the end-time temple, and it blesses all of the land around it. This is Revelation 22, 1 through 2. So when we look at the Bible and we let it uh, kind of interpret itself, 
That's what you call that. You look to different chapters, you look to different verses, and you use those to help you understand what's happening earlier on. Uh, it seems as clear as day that these, these first priests in the Bible are actually Adam and Eve. And they're in this garden, and they're standing in this mediating space between all of creation and humanity, or all of creation and God, um, and they're there. But we all know the story, right? Adam and Eve are subdued by one of the creatures that they're told to rule over. And they end up getting subdued by this snake. And, and we know the stories of prophets and priests and kings as, as the kings fail and the priests fail and the prophets fail. And they hear God's word about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And there's this desire within humanity that, that they be like God. That they become God. That they, they don't want to stand in this special place. They don't want to be the image of God. They want to be like God. And they seek after him and they try to be little gods of their own lives. This is the part where you can start applying it to your own life. <laughs> I warned you, it would take a little while to get there. But this is the part. But when we look at the story of Jesus, we actually see the story of one who also faced a test in the garden. In Matthew 26, we read about Jesus in the last few hours before his arrest. And he's in the garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 6, 39 says, going a little farther, he, meaning Jesus, fell down on his face on the ground and began to pray. But what does Jesus pray? He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. unlike all of the rest of the prophets and the priests and the king, in Jesus we find one who is faithful. He is faithful even unto death. And he makes an ultimate sacrifice for our sins. One that, one that is not goats and, and bulls and, and wheat offerings, but, but one that's made of his own body and made of his own blood. Or as the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 5.19. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many have been made righteous. So I'll leave you with this. I'm going to read for you Psalm 8. Now that we have a little different, uh, I don't know, we've, we've used our ancient Near Eastern muscles a little bit to kind of look at this uh, story in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I'm going to read for you Psalm 8, and I want, to, I want to just see, and I think it will, I want you to just see if anything stands out a little different. What, what is trying to be communicated with us here? And we'll end with this. The Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. To silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Yet you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, and the birds of the sky, and the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you.